Do we have any questions from last week? Last week we just spent all our time revisiting Sutra 2.4. This class we're going to start with Sutra 2.7. Um, Sutra 2.7, attachment is that which arises with pleasure. Swami writes, this statement is clear. (laughs) (laughs) But there is an important line that he has here. The important thing for a yogi is to learn how to enjoy a thing impersonally without attachment. Um, This is the fine line that we all have to cover, and I've covered it many times in various talks, but just to bring it up again. Detachment is not indifference. And like the misunderstanding of the spiritual path is to become indifferent. And, but indifference is usually the result of when we've been hurt too many times, and that's how we protect ourselves from being hurt anymore. And a master, by contrast, experiences everybody's reality as vividly as he experiences his own, but he's not identified with it, he's not defined by it. Defined by it is the most important part, because if you allow something to define you, then you have no alternative except that. And so therefore, if you're defined by being so-and-so's mother and the baby dies, if you're defined by being somebody's husband and the wife decides she's not interested in you anymore, if you're defined by being you know, a great painter and you lose your eyesight, then all of a sudden you, you have no reality. And by definition, our true reality, nothing can touch it. I mean, there's other verses in the Gita, this fire can't burn it, wind can't disturb it, water can't drown it. it it's, nothing can touch who we really are. And of course, that is the point of um, in, uh, impenetrable happiness, un, undisturbable happiness. So attachment is the same as saying, this is the only way that what I want can come to me. You see the difference? You can be completely committed. If you're drawn into a circumstance and this is what your karma brings you, and on Sunday I was talking, at the Sunday service, I was talking about um, the fact that our karma will take us where we need to go in order to learn the lessons that we have to learn. And so we we can't be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. We just have to live through it. And it doesn't, as Swamiji said to me once about when I was trying face something I had to do. I just thought I would do it badly. I mean, really, literally. And that was when he said, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. You know, if you find yourself as a father or a husband or a school teacher or a financier, whatever it is that you find yourself doing, you won't get freed from it from doing it badly. You have to do it, you have to go completely into it, but then realize that you have a greater reality around it. And detachment is saying, but this is what I have to have. And we become attached to that which gives us pleasure one way or another. But any limiting sense of pleasure is always accruing to the ego. And I don't mean that it's making us proud necessarily, but ego is the infinite spirit identified with the limited body. So if we have to have a certain condition, that means that it's an egoic definition, self-definition. And as we progress through the next couple of sutras right here, right now, we'll talk about what do we do about that. 
but it's it's extremely important because uh, people are afraid. I I saw some little uh, one of those many things that you see of the um, talent contests all over the world, and it was really interesting because there was they you know there's so much uh, proof of reincarnation in these incredibly talented children. Yeah, the one I may have mentioned her already. Some nine year old who sings arias operatic arias without any training just heard them and sang them clearly whoever she was before that woman said look I gained too much here I'm not giving it up <laughs> you know <laughs> and she just was born knowing what she knew when she died which is Mozart and others I mean it's not unprecedented but uh, but what I really appreciated so profoundly was that she was absolutely committed but, you know the difference between very often when I hear people chanting or speaking or singing or something, or just many different things. Music I'm not so good at myself, so I don't understand it as well. But commitment is everything. Dancing, whatever it is, you have to do it like you really mean it. And when you can see it. Art is a, art is a path to self-realization because you can see when you try to create, whatever you're creating, you can see how committed you are how willing you are to put yourself out there today. Uh, Sai Ganesh and I spent a half an hour today uh, trying to figure out exactly where to film. We're starting, a, we've been doing a web, webinars for India, uh, seven in the morning on Monday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> Convenient for India. <laughs> but uh, we were figuring, trying to figure out a certain setting because we're going to start doing the Gita commentary. I wanted to put the picture, the statue of Krishna. In. Anyway, but... Uh, he hung out with me for 40 minutes while we moved something a quarter of an inch and then moved it back. And <laughs> at the end, of, I said, I'm so glad you're not, you're sticking with me on this, you know. He's of the same type. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to do it, you have to just do it. Like, why just do it halfway? You have to be committed to it. And, and you have to learn by going through it. There's just no way around it. It's a big, it's a big deal, overcoming fear. Fear is a huge one. I remember years ago, and I've told you this, when I first married David, and he had to travel a lot, and so did I during those times. First time he was gone for three weeks. You know, now I'm gone for eight weeks, and it's sort of like hardly, I hardly notice. After 30 years, you have a certain you know, relationship karma in the bank. But after six months, three weeks was a really long time. And it was, it was dragging on. And I, you know, I mentioned to one of my friends, just that it was tiresome. And he's, I just never forget. He said, now don't become attached. Just like that. I looked at him like, are you out of your mind? Do you think I would have married him if it's like it didn't matter to me whether he was around? It's like, you're, it's not what you, because I could tell. It was also, it was not what he was saying. He was not saying don't become attached. He said, don't become involved. Don't become committed. Always hold yourself back a little bit from what you're doing which did not serve him well in his life at all, ever. But I could just tell it was wrong. I didn't know why it was wrong, but I knew it was wrong. I knew if I'm going to step into this, you have to step all the way into it. Of course, I would have rather have been more even-minded and more self-sufficient. I wasn't particularly proud of how I was feeling either. But I knew it was the only way to get where I was going. You know, this, is, this comes with the territory. If you don't want it, you don't do it. It's just the way it is. If you're going to do it, you don't get out of it by doing it badly, whatever it might be. You just got stuck, and there you are. Um, and if you don't enjoy it, 
then remember that. <laughs> Make a deep impression. Like my, my friend, when she was 10, childhood is not all it's cracked up to be. Don't forget. That's what she said. That's what I say to myself now, too. I like being old. Even when I'm young, I'm going to be old. You know, I'm going to be born wrinkled. You know, I don't have gray hair now, but maybe I'll be born with gray hair. I'll be prematurely gray, like two. <laughs> yeah, look at that old baby, exactly. Okay. Swami then goes on to tell us, aversion is that which arises from pain. Well, so there you have, there's the opposite. So he says, be impersonal. Tell yourself, this is happening, but not to me. Remember Swamiji, the story I've told you many times where he put himself way out there in a public way for a certain direction for his life in Ananda, and it just completely imploded, utterly imploded, total failure. You know, the prophet makes a prophecy, and the prophecy is nothing like this. And Swamiji just said, I could be embarrassed if I chose to be. But why would I be embarrassed? I just choose not to be. I mean, it's a really interesting thing. I could suffer from this, but, but maybe I won't. I just won't suffer. It's happening. There's been a disaster here. This is a problem that has to be solved. But why do I have to take it personally? And it's, it's just fascinating to play with that. Every time all of those feelings start coming into you, I'm unhappy, I'm in pain... I'm embarrassed, I'm this. Who, what, is actually feeling that way? Who am I, in other words? I remember my story from being two years old. My mother scolded me, and I knew there was a place inside of me where her scolding didn't exist. And I was not dissociating, which is, I know, a psychologically unhealthy thing to do. I was expanding, just from karmic memories, of how to deal with suffering. Oh yeah, this is happening, but it's not happening to me in the sense that it's only happening to that particular piece of me, which is, you know, that self that's out there that's vulnerable to that, but I'm a much bigger reality. It's a very, very fun way to deal with conflict. There's a couple in our community, and he he is a particularly impish sort, and he said whenever... uh, and these sort of dissonance would start developing with his wife, and he could see the heat rising. He would look at her and he says, I'm not caught yet, are you? <laughs> it's really fun when you start feeling it. I, am I caught? Am I beginning to suffer here? Am I beginning to get agitated, nervous? You know, maybe not. Do I have to? Why? It's going to pass anyway. I mean, that's the one certainty. How long can it last, as Swami said to his depressed friend, 50, 60 years? What difference does it make? I mean, even though that sounds wacky, it's, it's really just a day at a time. You know, you're never experiencing more than you're experiencing. I uh, listened to this audio book about uh, the training for Navy SEALs. As you know, I am interested in these arduous lives. So there's this book about this man who trains to be a Navy SEAL. I'd heard all about this, so I got the audio book. Go figure. And he talks about this last horrible rite of passage that they all have to go through in which I think like 10% of them make it through. After all this arduous training, they put them through like eight days of something and very small percentage. If it's 20 or 25, it's still a small percentage. This man who did make it through 
commented that they would have all these different tests, you know, which involved things like being underwater and lots of really, really icky, scary things. And then they would always have a brief respite, or they would usually have some brief respite when they would slightly recover, and then they would try again. He said, almost everybody dropped out during the interlude. He said, they dropped out anticipating how bad it was going to be the next time. He said, they, they didn't, they, more of them dropped out, maybe all. But he, as soon as he began to realize that, he realized it was a mental game because they weren't even actually suffering when they dropped out. They were just afraid about what might come next. Interesting, isn't it? I've, I've contemplated that a lot, how much of fear is in the mind, because we're all concerned about our delicate selves and what might happen to us, in the, being in the now. That's the other side of that. So, 2.8 is, aversion is that which arises from pain. It's about as simple as it gets, isn't it? Okay. Then 2.9 says, interrupt me if you have questions, even the wise cling, however slightly to this life, caught in the flow of satisfaction it has given them. (laughs) But what Swamiji, he talks now about a master when he sees his death approaching, and we have that story of Lahiri Mahashaya getting the message from Babaji that the sands of time are running out and you're almost finished. And Swamiji says, I love the way he says this, as a master may sigh inadvertently, however, at the misbehavior of a disciple, which is probably not able to quite say, oh, are we here again? One of my friends who raised five children, when the fifth baby was just learning to use the potty, and he had, she had successfully used the potty, and the potty was brought triumphantly to the dinner table so everyone could cheer the fifth child who was learning to use the potty. The father turned to the mother and just said, oh, are we here again? <laughs> you know, it has to be done, but oh, here we are again. And of course, he loved his children. He was perfectly happy to be there again. But there's a certain, well, here we are again. I love the way Swami puts that. So he sighs, thinking, so, you're off again. I love the way he says that. Oh, so, you're off again. It's been a nice run, and now we're done. This personality, this whole cycle, we've done it again. Master uses that phrase, when God calls me to incarnate again, and I see the personality I have to assume. There's a, you know, a moment's hesitation. It just, that's just so amazing to meditate on, just that. Imagine, where are you, and what does it feel like when God makes it known to you that you have to incarnate again? What does a moment go? Yeah, and you're you're, um, seeing that you're going to get to be Yogananda this time, or Arjuna, or or, uh, William the Conqueror. Huh, look at that. It's like your agent sends you the script. (laughs) I used to do um, a drama when I was in high school. I did drama in a lot of ways, but I also did theater when I was in school. (laughs) But uh, because I had some uh, karmic capacity to act, and it was high school, I usually got the old lady parts or the crazy woman parts or something like that. And so for my last last, uh, cycle in high school, I wanted to be the pretty girl. So I remember I got to I got to be the pretty girl, you know, and 
two people worked on me for three hours, and I really was the pretty girl, big hat, you know, big everything. It was the importance of being earnest. So I got to be Gwendolyn instead of the aunt. The aunt, of course, was the better part, but I got there, whoever, the aunt or whoever it was, the old lady in that one. But I remember just that thought. Oh, I want to be pretty this time. I want to be young. I want to be pretty. It's just like we have this attachment to the roles we're going to play. And it was, what I was saying it is, it was assuming a role. It was seeing what the part was going to be. And I can imagine that's about how a master would look at it. Oh, this is the part I'm assigned this time. Master is quoted somewhere in, in Swami's writing as saying, Lahiri Mahashaya was lucky. And then Master said, there have been three wars in my lifetime, and there were no wars at all during Lahiri's incarnation. Inasmuch as the Masters are so sensitive to the vibrations everywhere, and you know, they can literally feel what's going on on battlefields and so on like that. I mean, he, it was an interesting statement. You know, I've had to cope with all this suffering and all this hatred. Lahiri managed to slide in there where it wasn't happening. I've been reading a, another book about Anandamoy Ma. This is my Anandamoy Ma period, seemingly. And this one takes place uh, during the Second World War. And she was very um, mysterious in what was moving her a great deal of the time. It was a characteristic of her incarnation. And sometimes they would hear her um, exclaiming about suffering. And... Uh, they began to feel that she was experiencing the war in various places, going there and helping. Some pilots during the Second World War, I, the details of this escape me, but this is the essence of it, uh, more than once they saw pilots in the air, saw Padre Pio in huge form in front of them, helping them through things that they were going through. So these masters are a lot busier than we know. He saved, he saved the town? Oh, that's what he did. But he was in the sky and he was taking care of business. Imagine. Wow. So, but then here's the last sentence, he, talking about the masters. The master, talking about the master having to give up his body. This is right after, well, you're on your way. So, he accepts the fact and quickly adjusts to it. And that's when I realized it's not that you're indifferent, which is what I was saying a moment ago. It's that you're completely flexible. It's like, if this is what's happening, I'm completely committed to it. But as soon as the divine gives me another direction, then I'm just as committed in that direction. This is, I've been teaching the chakras class for the Indian webinars. The earth chakra is your commitment, but the water chakra is also required so that that commitment can be balanced by a flexible acceptance of wherever you are and whatever you're doing, and to lose that rigidity of ego involvement. I had a fascinating experience of this. Um, I told it in the book about Swamiji. When we were working to incorporate Ananda Village as a California city, I worked on that for 18 months all the time, just 100%, because it was a very contentious project. It was a long and complicated project, and I could never take my mind off it virtually. I got married somewhere in the middle of that, so I must have taken my mind off of it for a minute or two. But anyway, um, and then we were, we were defeated, but we were going to go forward, we were going to appeal, we were going to work. I mean, nothing was stopping us. And then Swamiji saw it differently and just stopped the project. He stopped the project when my foot was in the air and my fist was raised and my mouth was open. Like that. And then it was like, we're not going to do this anymore. 
you know, where does all that go? And it was really fun for me because, oh, why am I doing this? And I would use the word, what am I attached to? What, what is the reality of this? Am I doing this because I want to? Or am I doing this because Swamiji asked me and I believe in it? But, you know, what am I attached to? And I realized very quickly that I was attached to doing what was right. And Swamiji was the one who raised the point that we shouldn't do it, that an organization constituted for one purpose should not get itself involved in another, which is Ananda was constituted for religious purposes, and if we became a political entity, it would not serve us, which is essentially why we were denied, although that was an unconstitutional reason to deny us. If you get me started, I can go again. But (laughs) as Swami said there, they did not behave properly, but their decision was nonetheless the right one. And he, in that letter he wrote about it, he predicted all that's going on in politics right now, where all these so-called religious people are all trying to be political, and what a mess it becomes. So he stopped it. And I, once I got the logic, I was, I was fine. Plus, I didn't need to understand it. If he, he asked me to do it, and if he asked me not to, I would just stop. But, oh, was that fun, to have so much energy going in one direction, intellectual energy, emotional, everything, and then just in, literally in a second just have it shift and get to find out what is it that you really want to do. I actually did really well. I got over needing to win. I held on for a little bit longer to not letting them win. I wanted them to lose. I didn't mind if we lost, but I also wanted them to lose, or phrasing it differently. I didn't like that all the people who opposed us got what they wanted, because they hadn't been very nice. But 24 hours, 48 hours, that went away. And it was just like, fine, they can win if they want to. It's practice it in your own mind. That was Mother Teresa's marvelous answer about helping the poor. Oh, I'm not helping the poor. She said, I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. Just, you know, that is a complete world difference. And so that's how you have to think, that's the way to think about all the things that you're involved in. I mean, of course, most of us are not so impersonal that there isn't an element of desire involved there. That's how I finally decided to think about my own life because I started out for almost 10 years. I was a nun, and then David came into my life. I got married. It's worked out really well. I think we've done well together. But it wasn't a free choice at that point. I mean, it may still have been the right choice. I think, you know, life has shown that it was a good choice to make, that's for sure. But it wasn't a free choice. I would have had a really hard time if, but I suppose if I had felt strongly that God didn't want me to do it, maybe I could have mastered that. I just basically put it to Divine Mother, I hope this is okay with you. <laughs> but it's the freedom that you want, you see. So that if, if she asks you to do one thing, you just do it. If she asks you to do something else, you just do it. Instead of always being caught in that attachment aversion. Now all of this has to be balanced by everything I was talking about last week. Well, so what? You know, it's just, so what? This is what I feel I, you know, I don't have a choice. So let's just be honest. I don't have a choice. I'm going to go with what's my compulsions, and I hope that my experience will free me from them. So that then, married, unmarried, whatever, whatever God wants, however I can serve. I mean, it's a very, it's a high aspiration that I simply don't have. It's just as simple as that. When Swami got married, he got married because Master told him to. 
just Master said you need to because the community is really out of balance and there's no way it's going to straighten out unless you become a householder. He said, sir, I'm a monk. This was in his inner conversation. Master said, that's fine, doesn't matter. And when he first changed, he said, he published, I fulfilled my monastic vow and now it doesn't matter. Later he withdrew that because he didn't like the sound of that. But that's what he said, I fulfilled it and now it makes no difference. See, I'm past the point where it's a question of compulsion or not. Now it's just freedom, I can go either direction. Interesting. So, any questions or thoughts or comments here? Yes, Marilyn. When you stopped work, working on that city project or mm-hmm. making it into a city, did you right away get into another project or did you have time where you were standing around wondering what to do? Because that seems like it's the most difficult part. You're in action and then all of a sudden it stops. And if you can go immediately to some other action, that seems easy. Well, one seldom stood still in those years at Ananda. <laughs> so it's unlikely that I had a lot of leisure time. Uh, I must have gone from that into teaching more because that was the cycle when all that started up. But actually, that's not, even though that's common, that would not have been the same as detachment. That would have been distraction. And I know that I didn't distract myself. I know that I faced right into it because distraction was not a good idea. I had to face right into it. Swamiji had pulled the rug out from under me. How did I feel about that? You know, it was, a, it was an important spiritual question. What do I think versus what he thinks? You know, just there was a lot of issues and I was definitely not going to shirk them. They had to be looked right at. So there was no effort to distract myself. But I certainly did not stay idle very long. I just wasn't in my nature to do so. I always had lots of pots boiling on the stove at the same time, although that was a pretty solid cycle. Yeah, yeah I guess I just didn't know the, the, the word distraction. That's what you said. That, yeah, that's exactly. what I was wondering if you distracted yourself or... I mean, people do distract themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not a good idea. I mean, to find another positive outlet for your energy is a good idea because why just sit on your hands and be crabby because your first choice was taken away from you? That's being petulant. But to to get busy because you're afraid to be with yourself, um, well, sometimes still, save is the best way. It's better to become actively serviceful, but it's a matter of intention. Are you trying to run away from awareness? Are you just really realizing that the best way to get over this is just to start positive energy flowing in a new way? So it's, all, it's not the outward actions, it's the inner motivation. Right? If you're running away from yourself, that's always a bad plan. But sometimes you really can't sit there either. Um, there was a woman who used to have to work, worked all the time, and her friend said to Swami, she never takes a day off, why don't you tell her to take a day off? And Swami looked at the woman making the suggestion and said, I know what's best for her, just like that, because it did not serve that woman to have any free time. Any free time for her was just a downward cycle. As soon as she had a moment to think about herself, um, her thoughts about herself did not help her. So it was much better for her just to keep working. And this is back at uh, stanza 2-2. Seva is the best way to overcome the ego. So sometimes, yeah, distraction is a better plan than just sitting there going, 
down into the pits of despair. But it's a good idea to know that's what you're doing. And just admit that I'm trying to run out ahead of my bad mood. I always thought of my bad karma and my good karma. This was the, the, the car of, of service. And this was the car of self-concern, despair, unhappiness, crushing disappointment, terrible consequences. And I always feel like they were sort of like this, like a hot rod, you know, doing this thing. And I, if I just kept gunning the engine of the Seva one, then suddenly it would, it would bring it over the front. And it has, in fact, because Seva is the best way to overcome the ego. And so just looking at those two realities, if left to my own devices, the result's not going to be pretty. So let's just stay busy. Okay? Way to overcome the ego, no matter what you're thinking while you're doing the seva? It's still better than doing nothing. <laughs> it's a matter of the least, the, least, um, the least bad alternative. You know, sure. In fact, actually, that comes up right here. It says, uh, where is it? But he says later, uh, he says, it's number 214. He said, the deeds themselves are less important than the intention you may have given away fortunes in charity, but if you did it with the hope of impressing others, the outer benefit of your just generosity will be balanced against the egoistic intentions. So, you know, at the same time, it is always good to do good, even for selfish reasons. But it is better to do good in the spirit of genuine kindliness. But it's better to do good for selfish reasons than not to do it. So, it's, it, everything is directional. That's what's so nifty about this path, is wherever you're standing, you can always take a step forward. It's not like, well, you're just too, um, just too lousy as a devotee to be any good at all, so just quit. It's like, no, wherever you are, you can be better than that, as long as you're going in the right direction. So sure, it's just great to be totally selfless and unconcerned about what people think, but if you've got an eye back there to see if they like you, it's still better <laughs> to be going forward. You get some good karma for it. The two of them are racing. And you're, look at me, aren't I really something doing this? Is racing against the doing this. And if you keep doing this, they'll sort themselves out after a while. <laughs> and they do, trust me. me I, can, I can speak from experience. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? So then he says, so we were talking about flexibility. And now that's what I was talking about. Flexibility. That's really one of the ways. You're totally committed, but if it really changes in a way that it's really changed, you just go with the new flow. I mean, it's hard, really, because there's no limit to that. Somebody dies, somebody disappoints you, your complete life situation changes, you go bankrupt. Your health shifts, you get hit by a car, all these things can happen. I um, was reading this book on writing uh, by Stephen King, whose books I have never read and probably never would, but he knows a lot about writing. But he had this strange experience where he was hit by a car, by a van. He, he, he took this walk every night, he walked four miles every night, and he, he would walk facing... There was a short stretch on the highway. He would always watch facing, walk facing the traffic. And there was one tiny blind spot where he came up over a hill where he wouldn't be able to see what was coming. 
and a car manages to be coming right then. And as he, as he described the man, he was a very odd, sort of bizarre character who hit him. And Stephen King writes in the book, even at the moment when the man was talking to him right after his accident, he realized he had been run over by a character out of one of his own books. <laughs> but this man in a van has a dog in the back seat, is messing with the dog, slides right over to the shoulder, just comes right over the heel, bang like that. Just think how many things had to happen. Exactly so. And then he, he was hit in such a place that instead of hitting the frame of the car when he went right into it, Stephen, he hit the windshield, which of course severely injured him but didn't kill him. You know, and then another tumble, 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 and he falls here instead of there, and not on the rocks but on the road. Just, he did, I mean, the man writing the book has no, Stephen King didn't have any sense of karma or anything like that, but he noticed. But it was just a very dramatic example of how often, you know, everything has to conspire just so. So why are we always so um, believing, not accepting, not understanding, not flowing? It's really fascinating, but the flexible is what I was starting to say. That we can be completely committed to something, but can be taken away from us like that. Just in a second. Um, Heidi has a question. Where's the microphone? I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but I'll do my best. In terms of spiritual life, and making choices to nurture my spiritual life. If I feel, I'm just kind of thinking of the steadfast and flowing. You know, I just, there's, um, I guess what I notice is, um, I don't know how to say this, but it's kind of like, it, I feel attached. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like a strong sense of, um, oh, I don't know quite how to say are it. But attached, inf- Are you attached to your spiritual progress? Yes. Or are you attached to other, the other forces in your life? Which side is your The attached? spiritual. Sure. But it's kind of like, you know, not feeling flexible about something that's getting in, its, in the way of it or, you know, just kind of feeling like, Okay, now, um, attachment is a quality of egoic identification in the way we're using it. So if you're attached to that which is going to dissolve your ego, that's not the same kind of attachment. You're attached to overcoming your attachments, and you can overthink that one and get yourself really screwy. At the same time, even if you're going to be steadfast and loyal to truth, which is the quality of the first chakra, you have to be able to tell when you, you have to be able to discern between your idea of what that steadfast loyalty looks like and what may actually being asked, be, may be being asked of you. You know, if we're not living as monks in caves, if we have relationships, we have familial relationships, we have uh, friendships, we have duties and responsibilities, you know, you, it gets complicated. That's why people don't marry and don't have children. 
is because all of a sudden, whoa, you've got a whole lot of extra karma here. And then those children have children and you have all these conflicting cross-currents of karma and they all have to be considered. When Swamiji uh, uh, launched the Swami order and there was the category called Tiagi, where um, it's not a, the full renunciation of Swami, but it's definitely going in that direction. Swamiji said that you cannot be a Tiagi if you... Um, have children under the age of 18 if you're still in your child-raising phase of life. might have said under the age of 18, but it was child-raising. First he said child-bearing. We said, no, sir, that's not really the way to say it. (laughs) Child-raising. Child-raising, period, because this was his words. Raising children will not allow you to be as impersonal as a Tiagi needs to be, which is an extremely astute way of putting it. It wasn't really that you're less spiritual, but you can't be as impersonal because when you really are become, you, you owe it to them. You brought them into this world and their karma trumps yours, basically. And so you can't really say uh, one way or another whether or not that's the right or the wrong direction, even if it means you lose your meditation, you lose your retreats, you lose your community, you can lose lots of things. You give birth to a musical prodigy whose destiny is that that child has to be able to follow that, well, there you are, friend. Might have thought about that before you conceived. I mean, you don't know what you're getting, and you have to be willing. Just put it aside. There's a a fabulous statue that um, is in Crystal Hermitage that Swami has. It's from Bali. And it's uh, the moon eating the goddess, I think, like that. And uh, it's really a a beautiful picture. It's the moon being consumed and I remember Joseph Campbell talking about those images and talking about them uh, as the, you know, the son is eating the father all the time. It's, it's not really related to that statue because that statue was slightly different than that. But I remember vividly hearing Joseph Campbell talk, showing us some images, and all the images were the son eating the father, which seems like pretty gruesome. But as I got older and began to understand, yeah, that's exactly right. Son eats the father. I mean, my father was eaten by, our, by the three of us. And I remember at one point when I was a teenager, could I have actually realized this when I was a teenager? Maybe I did. You know, my parents were so stodgy and unspontaneous. You know, we could never do anything just on the spur of the moment, whereas a teenager, you're just ready to just go anywhere without a nickel in your pocket. And I realized, of course, that my parents were a lot more spontaneous before we were born. (laughs) What made them so unspontaneous was the fact that we would have a temper tantrum if they didn't have the food, the water, the this, the this, everything all worked out. The children had eaten eaten their parents. It's just, that's what happens. And that's as it has to be. You can't be other than that. I'm using that as an example, but you can see that, um, and that's why, you say to yourself, remember this. This is not exactly what it was cracked up to be, and that's how experience gradually gives you what used to be an attachment. It becomes an aversion, literally. It becomes painful to contemplate rather than attractive to contemplate. It's the last thing you want, ever, because you know where it leads you. So I could, you know, in, in, in the life of Henry, King Henry, the son of William, he had one legitimate son. He had more children that were not legitimate, but he had one legitimate son in whom he put the hope of succession succession in the kingdom on that one man, trained him up 
to be his heir, had all his nobles pledge loyalty to him. It was all in order. That young man with all his cronies got on that ship to cross the English Channel. One generation was in one boat and the other generation was in the other. And that boat, they began to carouse and drink and they gave the wine to the boatman and the boatman hit a rock and the boat went down and everybody but one was killed. Whole generation wiped out, including his only heir. I mean, Swamiji had lots of reasons for not being interested in having children, <laughs> but he often mentioned that one as part of the reason why he was, he was pretty convinced. I've joked with you all, but I've told you all that when I first read that story, I was so stricken. Oh, my gosh. I don't know which side. I don't know if I was passing the wine out on the young people's boat or if I was one of the parents who lost their child, but I was just emotionally devastated when I read that story. And I wrote Swami a note of condolence. I'm so sorry, sir. You know what happened? He wrote back and he said, I appreciate it. I mean, he really understood. He said, but you see, it was a long time ago. (laughs) And I think I'm over it by now. But such an experience, you see, helps you realize, what am I putting my faith in in this world? And finding yourself embroiled in such a way that your spiritual priority cannot be asserted over the karma of all the people that you're involved to, that also makes an impression. And one thinks more carefully about the commitments one makes the next time and the next time and the next time because you are involved with all these people's karma. And that's why the single life is a really great life. The renunciate's life is a really super-duper life because you, all you're really having to deal with, if it's right for you, you can't do it out of fear, but if it's right for you, you just you don't have all those karmic complications. I mean, among many reasons why it's a very nice life. It's a, that's a very nice life. You're just, you get to follow the trajectory of your own energy, and you don't have to be constantly... Now, of course, as Swami told us when we were young nuns, just because you're not having babies doesn't mean you don't have to, to give to the world with the same total dedication that a mother would give to her children. Don't think this is like a way of getting out of that effort. It's just a more impersonal expression of it. And only if you've really lived that can you feel what that means. You know, if you've lived it either in either that actual lifestyle or just in yourself, you really understand. There's a very fine line in there, and it's very, very real. It's extremely real. When I stopped being a nun and got married, it was like... I mean, nothing had changed. I was still living at Ananda. I was still doing exactly the same work. I moved a few miles. But everything shifted. I was no longer a renunciate, a monastic. I was now a householder. Astonishing change. I was shocked. And it wasn't circumstantial. It was somehow different than that. I'd moved over to another vibration, and now I had to make my spiritual life through that. And so we remember. You know, and by the grace of God, of course, I got a prince of a devotee, so it's just been, on every objective way, it's been fine. Ah, but there's still a difference. You know. Now we're nigh a Swami, so it's different again. That was Swami's little, marvelous little, oh, look, here's an idea. Wow, that's an idea. When he offered it to us, um, I said, sir, I just never, th- I never thought this would come back, ever. I never thought this would come back. He said, what do you think? Wow, I never thought it would come back. And then I said, 
I said, it's been a puzzle to me how I was going to make the end of my life as spiritually dynamic as the beginning. And I said, I feel like you have rescued me from spiritual mediocrity. And you know what he said? Yes. Wow. Yes. I mean, he was rescuing all of us. Because there we were, like, what were we going to do next? So he gave us this, and it, it's been very real. It's not just, you know, the color. It's very real. So, I think we'll take a break. <laughs> it's a little early, but let's take a break. <laughs> All right. I was, I was thinking um, that being in community, in spiritual community like we are in, is, can provide a, maybe, I don't know if the word is trajectory, because like I, I'm probably one of the most obligation-free people I know, mm-hmm. and um, it's just good karma, mm-hmm. or lucky karma, anyway. So the community is what provides the momentum. I don't know what I would do. I mean, how would I have any purpose? There you have it, don't you? How would you have any purpose? I mean, me too. That's one of the reasons I embraced Ananda so wholeheartedly. I always say it was because of Swamiji, which was true. But I remembered another piece of it, which was I really wanted to have a reason to get up in the morning. And I wanted to be doing something that mattered. And he not only offered me his own example and inspiration and potential, but he also gave me something to do. So the fact that he was starting Ananda, that it was, that it included him, he presented it that night, although I don't remember any of his words. Um, He presented it Ananda that night when I first saw him, and he presented it in the context of it's not enough to think of yourself, you have to also be serving others. So the fact that there was a retreat in the middle of the community, and the retreat was central to what the community was doing, also made a profound impression on me because I would not have been able to just go there and try to take care of myself. It was the fact that I could go there and engage also in something that was immensely going to be immensely helpful to others. They were actually inextricably entwined. Oddly, I forgot the second one, and over the years I've only thought about Swamiji, but service to others is inherent in Swamiji's DNA. So they became the same thing in my mind, but they weren't exactly when I started. Well, I've um, always done... I've done a lot of volunteer work over my life, and Mm -hmm. and besides working, and... But for some reason, this seems to make more sense. Well, heavens, dear, we're... (laughs) You know, give a man a fish and he's hungry tomorrow. Teach him how to fish and he'll never be hungry again. I mean, we're like at the top of the food chain here in terms of uh, taking care of other people. Teach people to change their consciousness and, to, you know, it's game over. That's, I mean, that is exactly why it's so deeply meaningful because what we are offering is the, is the, and the end of the story. I mean, not the end of the story literally for all of us, but it's the, it's the last round. This is where you get when you really have tried a lot of other stuff. Oh, I see. Let's see. The essential problem is the ego. How do I overcome the ego? Because all suffering emanates from identification, from egoic identification. Well, let's back up a little. Thinking that that which is permanent 
Impermanent is permanent. Here it is, number two, five. See, this Patanjali is so smart. <laughs> you know, ignorance, which is the cause of suffering, is the conviction that the impermanent is permanent, that what is impure is pure, and what is painful is pleasant, and what is the not-self is the self. And if you untie those delusions, you've done, untied everything else that follows, be it loneliness, be it ill health, be it poverty, be it violence, hatred, discontent, disharmony. You untie, it, you untie it from the top and it all comes down properly. And I think we've just worked our way through all of these other options. Um, that's, you know, many spiritual people start out being socially active. You know, you want to do politics, you want to help poor people. And there's nothing at all wrong with that, but... The first time I went to India and saw overpopulation and poverty is more than just a picture in the book or a theory. I really looked out and I just said, consciousness is the only solution to this. There is no way you can just bake enough bread to feed these people. Um, it's got to be a change of consciousness. So every problem I look at in the entire planet, change consciousness, change everything. So is it yeah, is it deeply gratifying to be part of this work? I sure think so. It's like you can just, you know, go to bed every night and think, wow, look what I did today. You know, just even to help one person move that far toward an understanding of what the cause of suffering is and how to untie it, just to make one bouquet of flowers so that when everybody sits in here, they'll be more inclined to feel that, to vacuum the rug, to put the chairs in order, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people do, but what it, the net result of all of it is, is that people feel the possibility of transcendence. And then you're motivated to the next step. I just thank God every day for Ananda. And as I've said many times, it's not one day. I don't even think there's been one minute in one day. I really don't believe there's been one minute in one day that I haven't known what we have here. People will, you know, complain about this and that. You have no idea what we have here. You know, start, you start with Master and just come all the way down. You just have so, it's just amazing what we have here. Opportunity to serve, opportunity to grow. Just, it's a parallel. And, you know, we struggle, but so what? I think I'm going to put that on a plaque, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. That would, that would be... I would love to be known for that. You can put it on my tombstone. <laughs> no, I get passionate. I get very passionate about it because people start carping. And I think you, don't, you, just, you just don't know what you have here. Yes, I can ask. This is actually off the topic. I was going to ask this question at the beginning of the class. Just... You're going to have to ask it more clearly. I was going to ask this at the beginning of the class. It just skipped my mind. This is actually with reference to something you said last week. Okay. I'm probably trying to remember the words right now, but you said uh, when Swamiji was advising somebody who had a very severe illness, uh, he said them, he asked them to seek the light or uh-huh. stay in the light. Right. I was just thinking about that and I was wondering why would it just apply to somebody who's terminally ill? Why would it apply? To Why would it just apply to somebody who's just ill? Shouldn't it be just general advice for everyone? Oh, it, yes, it applies to everyone. Oh, the question is, why would it be just for her terminally ill? Mm-hmm. 
No, of course, it applies to everyone. But it was also really good advice for a terminally ill person because um, that was what we were talking about last week, about whether or not you're going to have to live through it or be rescued from it. And so that, that just put the question off to the side. To whether she was going to be, whether she was going to die or live, you're exactly right. What she needed to do was just stay in the light, follow the light. And whichever way it went, then it was fine because she was doing what she was needed to do. And so, yeah, you and me and everyone, if we're still healthy, just still follow the light, stay in the light. It's another nice, simple way of putting it. Very good. But it was brilliant in the moment, too. I mean, I didn't know what to say. I couldn't quite articulate it. Once, she artic- once he articulated it, I was able to, to stand by her and help her literally till her last breath. Just follow the light. By then she really got it. You know, she, from that point on, she really got. In every situation, well, just go with the light. You can even evaluate treatments. My friend Paula, who died from the second or third reoccurrence of the cancer, when she was dying in the hospital, she never took the chemo. Um, they gave, gave her chemo and pills, and she was sitting somewhere, and she just was looking at it, and she just didn't, it wasn't for her. And so when she's dying in the hospital, her oncologist, who was a really nice man who has treated a number of people who had cancer, she took the trouble when he came to visit her, and she said, don't feel bad that I'm dying. She said to him, I forgot about this, don't feel bad that I'm dying. She said, you know, you gave me treatment, but I didn't take it. You know, doctor, and this is her way, I'm just not a chemo kind of gal. <laughs> and but it was, I mean, she was so sensitive that she knew he felt badly because she was dying because it was his job to save her. And so she didn't want him to have that feeling. I'm just a, not a chemo kind of gal. Of course, he laughed, and we all laughed, but she was really giving him a lot. She was, and that was also her way of, because she couldn't talk to him about God and Guru and all of that, but that was her way of conveying to him, there's other things going on, and you don't have to really take responsibility for everything. Yeah. She was, when she was lying on her bed, she didn't move a lot in those last few days, and one of the nurses, I mean, she's hours from death, the nurse is concerned because she hasn't urinated in quite some time. I said to Paula, they're concerned because you haven't peed. <laughs> and she looks at me like this. And I said, is it that painful? She said, oh, yeah. She said, I hope to die before I have to pee again. <laughs> <laughs> she was just so real. Just now that I'm here... David and I were in Costa Rica on vacation, and we got a phone call that said Paula had gone to the hospital, and they tried to treat her, but she had some kind of an episode, and they realized they couldn't treat her and pray for her. This, like, call comes in. must have been a phone call, so we didn't have email then. So we just got that call, and then we didn't hear anything else. And we were there for another week, and there was no other message, and we just sort of assumed that she'd died. But when we were coming back from Costa Rica, for some reason we were flying in and out of Sacramento. So when we got to Sacramento, we wanted to know whether to go down to Palo Alto or up to Ananda Village. So somehow we found a phone number, and we called the hospital, and her brother, Arjuna's her brother, answers the phone. There's a whole lot of people in the room. 
David, Asha, Paul has been dying to hear from you. The whole room just bursts into laughter. <laughs> no, no, no. She's been not dying waiting to hear from you. <laughs> she picks up the phone. She says, get up here. <laughs> it was like that. So we rented a car and went up. <laughs> Arrived for the last three days. <laughs> That's following the light. You know, it's like, why be delicate? Here we are. Okay, now, any other questions? So, now we are about ego. This is back, we're good, back to good old ego. This is number 210. All these obstacles, attraction, aversion, etc., all the obstacles he's been painting all this time, um, thinking the permanent is, the impermanent is permanent and so on, can be removed by the perception of their first cause, which is the ego, which is exactly what I was saying to you, Marilyn, in response to your question. The ego is like the roots of a great tree. When the roots are killed, the tree dies. So, it is good to battle with one's individual weaknesses. It is better, however, to fight those battles which are easier to win. Instead of struggling futilely against enemies that are too strong for you, by fighting winnable battles one gains the strength for fighting the harder ones. The supreme war, of course, is against the ego itself. Its destruction, or rather its transformation, is, in all spiritual struggles, the main goal. And it can be fought all the way, and this is the part I love, nibbling at it piece by piece, (laughs) instead of conducting one massive campaign. This is really an important point, because... I have seen a lot of people come and then go from the spiritual path. And when you're really so wildly enthusiastic, it's hard to imagine why you would ever go. You just can't even think about it. But a lot of people do go. And part of sometimes when they go is they try to fight battles they can't win. I don't remember the context in which I was thinking this, but... um, A friend of mine was talking about certain instructions of masters in master's writing that actually caused him to be quite neurotic for most of 25 or 30 years because he couldn't fulfill them. And he said to me, when we were talking about this, he was, you know, decades later, I'm talking to him basically, whatever happened to you? Because he was one of those who had a lot of difficulty and kind of wandered away for 20 years or so. I said, whatever happened to you? Oh, well, you know, it was so conflicted about this that I was supposed to do and that renunciation and that and this. And he said, how did you manage? And I looked at him and I said, it never occurred to me that that applied to me. Just not once. It never crossed my mind that I was supposed to do that. It was such an unwinnable battle, I didn't even see it. It wasn't even on the horizon there. And it's important. Gyanamata put it this way. It's slightly different, but she put it differently. She put it like this. She was talking about faith. She said, you have to keep backing up on the spiritual path until you have reached the bedrock of your unshakable point of faith. Whatever that might be, you know, whether it's that there is a greater reality, um, that my guru knows what he's doing, um, that kindness is a better policy than unkindness, no matter how tiny it might be, so that you're standing at a place where nothing can deter you. It can't be, 
everything happens for the best and I just love whatever God sends me. For most people, you have to back up a little from that. I trust God, but I don't always like what he does. You know, that's a, that can be a point of, or as uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta put it, God never sends me more than I can handle, but sometimes I wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> Very simple. That's just that's an honest point of faith. I know there's a truth back here, but I can't always rise to it. But you can nibble away at it. And then Swami gives us examples. Um, when people praise you, you know, say God is the doer. When people blame you, then accept it calmly. And he goes on and on. When people slight your importance, then accept it. Thanking them for making you unimportant. Um, instead of thinking what good may come to you, think what can I give? Instead of thinking about how people are treating me, think how can I treat them? How can I be a true friend instead of why are they not friends to me? Just the, um, the minutes are more important than the years because you're, we're always making a choice. We're always making a choice. And we can tell whenever that little bit of a, a niggling, I'm unhappy because, and I'm perfectly justified in being happy because, and it's so clear that they're in the wrong because, and the, I think it's always so delicious when they are in the wrong. Because a lot of times people do do really bad things. And often they do them to you. And you are perfectly innocent. I just, I, I love being innocent. I love being innocent and still upset. And then just having to play that out. Why does it matter? Why do I need people to listen to me? Why do I need to be respected for what I can contribute? Now, of course, sometimes you do have to learn to speak up, and there's lots of different rules, but still, nibble away at it. Every time it starts... Many years ago, um, when Richard Salva, Dayanand, still lived here, uh, he's, he was very much into uh, comic drama and all kinds of things, and he made a Star Trek, Star Trek uh, skit based on Star Trek. Star Trek, that's the one. Beam me up, Scotty, that's the one. Okay. And uh, somehow or another we got little, we got costumes, we got those little stretchy onesies that looked really like it, like that. And he cast me into this thing. And I was Captain Praver. And everyone thought it was David who was going to show up. And we were, we were still in the building. Were you, in, were you in the room? We were still in the building on California Avenue on the second floor. Sarah, Tom might have been there. And there was, it was just some story where, you know, we were, I don't know, the Starship Enterprise was threatened by something or another. And the solution was that I came in and got everybody to meditate and that, that solved it. So I just essentially played myself. But I had to walk out and there was a, it was a hundred and something people in the room. I had to walk out in this little stretch thing, you know, with, I don't know whether he had a little cap on and like this. And when I appeared, for some reason, everyone thought it was hysterically funny. <laughs> I had done nothing but just walk out there in the little elastic onesie and I'm just standing here like this. Everybody, the most important people in the world to me, are laughing their heads off for a long time. You know, the rollicking, sort of knocking each other, half falling off the chair kind of laughing. It went on for a really long time. And I just had to stand there. And just I was just being utterly ridiculous. And it was, it was a very interesting couple of minutes, you know? Like, I can't stand this. 
How dare they? I'm important. I'm not silly. I'm the captain. captain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you name it, it went through my head. (laughs) And then I just had to stand there, and I had to keep my cool, too, because the worst thing for me would have happened would be for me to become all flustered. I mean, I was enough of an actress that I knew that. But also... I couldn't let all those laughing people know they were getting to me. <laughs> it was important that I remained. But it was, it's always been marvelous for me to remember just like, wow, how, how it feels. You know, just every opportunity we have, you just nibble at it. You just nibble away at it. Every time any little thing happens, you do the wrong thing and everybody knows it. You say something really stupid in front of everyone and everyone knows it. You know, you go off and... Anyway, over and over again, you just have to keep. Why didn't they ask me first? How dare they leave me out of the meeting? How could they make the decision without asking me? Everybody knows that's not what I want. (laughs) Just run it. Nibble away at it. Because if you can untie that knot, you've untied all the rest of them. If you can stop identifying with the ego and its limitations then you can go to the dentist and you don't need Novocaine. I mean, it's a straight line, even though it doesn't feel like it. You can lose that which is most cherished to you and just say, oh, well, new adventure. You have to practice all the time. That's Swami's answer to me. How do you know what God wants? You practice when it's easier. People sometimes ask me, and it's, you know, it's a real question by this point, how do I prepare for a class? You know, what do I do? My first answer is, well, I've been doing this for like, 35 years, which is a lot of water under the bridge. But the other answer is, I am continually preparing for my classes and my sermons. I mean, I do have my down days. I have my moments when I'm glad there's no one around. That's definitely the truth. Between me and God, and God is not having a very good time. (laughs) But nonetheless, I've just always known that I've just got to do the small stuff. You've got to always be paying attention. And there's just it, does, it doesn't serve your best interests. Sometimes we collapse under the weight of chronic imperfections and we just have to wait till they run out. But everyone that you can have a chance on, um, don't ever consider it unimportant. Nibble away at it. I just love that little picture. You know, you just sort of have the little light bubble nibbling away at the dark one, just nibbling away at it all the time. It's a great image, isn't it? And, and we can all nibble. You know, we might not be able to gulp, but we can all nibble, right? So keep nibbling. There's another point here. You think what it was? Yeah, as long as there's no one else around to hear you. But even if there is, but that's what Swami just then. But that's then what Swami describes, and this was the thing that Tom was asking about last week. You know, at some point, what Swami became upset with was he became upset with his pride. He had a very brilliant mind, and he had always enjoyed having a brilliant mind, but he realized that it was getting very tiresome, just always having this brilliant mind and being so proud of it. And, he, and that, it, it was the symbol to him of all his egoic attachments, because that was really, I guess, where it all focused for him. And also there he was suddenly in this environment where that just wasn't the point. The point was loving God. It wasn't being like super smart. And in all the other uh, environments he'd been in until then, everybody else prized what he prized. And all of a sudden, in the context of living with Master, what difference did it make? 
It just didn't make any difference. In turn, in fact, it was a, a service to Master that he had that intelligence. And it's one of the ways in which he has been able to serve Master so perfectly because he's been able to use it. But using it in service to his guru is quite different than being proud of it for its own sake. So he just became fed up with it and he, he drove it out, meaning all of those limiting ego-attachments. And what Swami writes is really something since then. I mean, this was like his first year on the spiritual path. Since then, I have no longer felt a need to, re- to refer things back to myself. It's a very interesting phrase just by itself. Everything that happens, we refer it back to ourselves, don't we? I was talking to a young devotee recently and trying to help her um, make the right decisions and understand that it's okay, we've all been through it. And I remember my very first, it was my first months or maybe my first couple of years, but I was so accustomed and I thought this was a real positive value. I was proud of the fact that I always calculated in any situation what would be the most fun for myself. And fortunately, I had a generous heart. So what was often fun for me also looked good. But I was very aware, and it was part of also the freedom of the 60s, you know, although I'd never really been a very dutiful person ever anywhere, but it was part of that freedom was that in in every situation I would figure out how it related to me, and then I would make the choice that I thought would be the most fun for me. And I, I would just, you know, do it lightning fast, constantly. Which did not cause me always to be where I was supposed to be. Because I always felt justified in shifting my commitment if I thought this was a better deal for me. And as I said, a lot of it didn't show. But it was always in there. Always. And when I read in uh, Swami Vivekananda's book, Don't Think About Yourself and You'll Be Happy, And I remember I've said to all of you, I had no idea even how to begin not thinking about myself. But I wasn't selfish. I just referred everything back to me. Whatever happened, I referred it back to me. I calculated my own position, and then I made my decision. Interesting. And when I got to Ananda, it got to be a joke, because I was so enthusiastic, and I was always into something that I was not so good at being where I was supposed to be because I would start this way, and then that was a possibility, and I'd go do that, and then I'd meet this person, then I'd go do that. And that was when I left work for work at 8 in the morning and arrived at 4 in the afternoon. And that was the day that Seva, in her inimicable, laconic way, said, Good morning. (laughs) And that's all she said. (laughs) Good morning. After pointedly looking at her watch. But I got it. That was the point at which I got it. Oh, wait a minute. There's something really not quite right here. Everything is always being referred back to me. But this is... And it wasn't even, as I said, that I actually needed to be at work earlier than that or that I wasn't doing good things, but everything was referring back to me. And that's where karma yoga gets to be such a big help. And this is where he says, again, the ego is the root of a great tree. Kill those roots and you've killed the whole thing. And then you go back to the previous one, which is 2.4, where he says the best way, um, the best way to overcome the ego, and I can't find it right now, but is through seva, through selfless service. And that's why, you know, on the path, no, excuse me, number four is something different. It was number two. That's why I couldn't find it. 
Um, in number two, he just says the best way to overcome the ego is by service, selfless service. That's why Ananda is so seva-oriented. It's not even really that we have so much to do or that we're serving Master's work. Or we have to build the self-realization path. We have to build our own temple. We have to build our own temple of divine consciousness. And if we don't have a lot of opportunities to really do selfless service for a cause that matters, we won't be able to kill the ego as effectively. Because most of us are not, you know, that kind of meditators. It's just not our, our incarnation. So I, I referred on Sunday, yesterday, to a friend of mine who said he had a perfect life, but it was all for him. That was when he decided to become a father. Conscious decision to live for something greater than himself because he could just see that this was not going anywhere. This was lots of fun, but it wasn't going anywhere. So having a child did, did for him exactly what he knew it would, which is it just forced him into a, a bigger reality. It was seva. That's why God makes so many people want babies. Now, I had one more point here. Oh, yes. The other thing, let me just find out what I mean. Oh, I know what I was realizing. Oh, no, actually, this is for the next one. So I'm going to keep it as a secret until next week. (laughs) Okay. Is there anything else that needs to be said before the night is over? Okay. Thank you very much, great souls. So we made it all the way through 210. 27 to 210. Galloping through the book.